0: Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm
1: Pradeep Kamath. And I'm Rahul Dimania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine.
0: Here's the case presented
1: by Rahul Dimania. A six year old child with a known history of craniopharyngioma who has recently been endocrinologically intact with the exception of needing thyroid replacement, was admitted to the PICU prior to craniotomy to proceed further with tumor resection. The patient had a secondary cyst impacting his brainstem and thus required the second resection. The patient is receiving Keppra for seizures, and per mother, he has recently been significantly more sleepy at school. The patient underwent the operation And let's fast forward to post-op day 5. On post-op day 5, the pediatric ICU bedside nurse noticed increased urine output as high as 6 to 10 mLs per kilo per hour. Initially, there was an increase in serum sodium to 157, which within 48 to 72 hours, the serum sodium had a precipitous drop to 128. So Rahul, to summarize
0: uh, key elements from this case, the patient has increased urine output greater than four cc's per kilo per hour, has a rapidly rising sodium that was followed by a drop within about forty eight hours, and all of which will bring up a concern for a sodium water problem
1: post craniotomy. That's a great summary. So in today's episode, we will be breaking down all things sodium and the brain we will discuss diagnostic and management frameworks related to three pathologies. Number one, central diabetes insipidus. Number two, syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone or SIADH. And number three, cerebral salt wasting.
0: Now, these diagnoses can certainly be seen individually in patients or as a spectrum of disease. As we go through each of these diagnoses, pay particular attention to patient characteristics and lab abnormalities, namely serum sodium, serum osomes, and urine osomes, as well as the urine output.
1: To build the fundamentals, let's first start with the classic nephrology saying, a serum sodium abnormality may be related to a hydration or free water problem.
0: This takes us to a brief review of normal physiology we'll be talking about three important hormones the antidiuretic hormone or adh aldosterone and atrial natriuretic peptide or anp
1: let's go through a quick multiple choice question a patient is recently started on ddavp for panhypopituitarism the medication acts similarly to a hormone which is physiologically synthesized in which of the following areas of the body A, paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus, B, supraoptic nucleus of the hypothalamus, C, anterior pituitary, or D, vascular endothelium.
0: And Rahul, the correct answer is B, the supraoptic nucleus of the hypothalamus. Remember that ADH is synthesized in the hypothalamus and released from the posterior pituitary. So Rahul, what are the physiologic actions of ADH?
1: This takes us all back to our medical school and nursing school days. ADH increases water permeability by directing the insertion of aquaporin-2 water channels in the luminal membrane of the principal cells which are in the collecting duct. Thus, as we will see later on in this episode, the central diabetes insipidus, in which you have an absence of ADH, the principal cells are actually virtually impermeable to water. Pradeep, let's talk about our next hormone, aldosterone. What are the important physiologic considerations? Aldosterone is secreted
0: from the adrenal cortex as a byproduct of the RAS system. Aldosterone increases sodium reabsorption by the renal distal tubule, thereby increasing extracellular fluid volume, blood volume, and arterial pressure. It also helps in secreting potassium and hydrogen. This physiology is applied directly at the bedside when we have a patient in the PICU who has contraction alkalosis secondary to diuretics. The increase in aldosterone as these patients lose free water from their furosemide administration results in hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis.
1: All right. What about the third hormone, ANP? Atrial
0: natriuretic peptide, ANP, is released from the atria in response to an increase in blood volume and atrial pressure. ANP causes relaxation of the vascular smooth muscle, dilatation of the arterioles, and decreases total peripheral resistance. It also causes increased excretion of water and sodium by the kidney, which reduces blood volume and attempts to bring arterial pressure down to normal.
1: Just to summarize, as ANP causes naturesis, diuresis, and inhibition of renin, you can consider this hormone as having a complementary and opposite effect of both ADH and aldosterone.
0: All right, now that we have the basics, let's talk about an index case presentation, central diabetes insipidus, or CDI. Rahul, can you illustrate the key diagnostic features of this disease?
1: I first off just want to say that central diabetes insipidus is an important cause of hypernatremia in the pediatric ICU setting and can actually be seen in primary brain lesions, traumatic brain injury, or even as a harbinger of brain death. In our patient, we had central diabetes insipidus most likely from the craniopharyngioma resection. Central diabetes insipidus results from inadequate ADH secretion. Children in the intensive care setting typically present with abrupt polyuria and free water diuresis.
0: So Rahul, what are the common triggers for central diabetes insipidus in the PICU?
1: Some of the common triggers are traumatic brain injury, brain tumors, pituitary surgery, i.e. postoperative craniopharyngioma resection, central nervous system infections such as encephalitis or meningitis, as well as cerebral hemorrhages or infarcts. Now central diabetes insipidus most commonly occurs in the setting of brain death as well. To summarize, because patients with central diabetes insipidus can conserve sodium appropriately, they typically do not manifest signs of volume depletion unless the diagnosis is delayed. Thus, central diabetes insipidus is a cause of euvolemic hypernatremia.
0: Absolutely. Actually, in central diabetes insipidus, The urine osmolality is typically less than that of the plasma osmolality. These patients have more than 4 ml per kilo per hour of urine output. So Rahul, what is the ICU management of a patient with central diabetes insipidus?
1: The management of CDI includes the correction of free water deficit and the administration of the ADH synthetic analog desmopressin acetate or DDAVP. In a critically ill patient, a vasopressin infusion may be needed for rapid increase in urine output and serum sodium. An advantage of vasopressin is the quick on-off effect. Now, desmopressin can be administered subcutaneously, intranasally, or intravenously. The dosing varies by the route of administration, and you should consult your pediatric endocrinologist for specific management in these patients. To summarize, you can think of desmopressin dosing as the 110 10 100 rule, whereas an IV formulation of desmopressin is 1 microgram, an inhaled is 10 micrograms, and PO version of desmopressin is 100 micrograms. Again, you will be working very closely with your pediatric endocrinologist to optimize dosing as well as patient factors. In critically ill patients, edema and peripheral vasoconstriction may preclude effective subcutaneous administration. Therefore, intravenous administration of DDAVP or even a continuous vasopressin infusion may be required because their subcutaneous tissue can just be so edematous and you're going to be worried about the systemic absorption.
0: So Rahul after you give a patient with central diabetes insipidus a dose of desmopressin what would you expect with regards to sodium and urine output
1: Absolutely now patients with CDI will typically have a reduction in urine output and a greater than 50% increase in urine osmolality in response to the first dose of DDABP. and this is where you're going to work very closely with your bedside nurse to sometimes draw labs pre and post Desmopressin administration. At times, we are measuring their urine output in mLs per kilo per hour. So, if a patient is on a continuous vasopressin infusion for diabetes insipidus, titrating to a urine output of one to two mLs per kilo per hour may be appropriate in certain circumstances.
0: So, Rahul, in an index case, why do you think a patient with high urine output and high serum sodium, the serum sodium suddenly dropped in forty-eight hours?
1: This is a great question, and it helps us review the concept of a triphasic response. Now, in this particular patient, there may be two possibilities. Either the patient has received DDAVP, or more likely, the patient is having a triphasic response, as many patients undergoing pituitary surgery do have this triphasic response. Essentially, they present within two to four days after their surgery with diabetes insipidus, followed by SIDH for two to five days, and a return to diabetes insipidus where they're hypernatremic and have a high urine output. This triphasic response, as it is going to be very dynamic, can sometimes be very difficult to treat. Now, most patients with cranial pharyngioma already have pituitary hormone deficiencies at the time of diagnosis, which is more common in children than adults. Approximately 70% of children with craniopharyngioma have growth hormone deficiency followed by gonadotropin deficiency which is the second most common. The third most common is going to be central diabetes insipidus which we have been discussing and then TSH deficiency, ACTH deficiency fall as a close fourth and fifth. The course of central diabetes insipidus can be transient, permanent or a component of the triphasic pattern, which we just reviewed. Now, Pradeep, let's go into this concept a little bit more. Can you highlight some key clinical pearls here? Yes. Yeah, so,
0: in the first phase of the triphasic pattern, there is an acute increase in hypoosmolar urine output within 24 to 48 hours following surgery. And this happens due to an antidiuretic hormone deficiency resulting from traumatic edema of the neurons. Exonal shock due to impairment of the vascular supply, and or pituitary stock re- transaction. These patients have a tendency towards hypernatremic dehydration during this phase, which lasts about 1 to 7 days. At this phase, appropriate fluid replacement is required to prevent water loss and hyponatremic dehydration. However, low-dose desmopressin can be used to decrease urine output. Desmopressin replacement dose should be titrated with caution because of its long half-life, and during this phase, its use can complicate the subsequent hyponatremic phase of the triphasic response.
1: Let's transition to the other extreme, and that is SIDH syndrome of too much antidiuretic hormone. What are the common
0: etiologies here? SIDH can occur due to a variety of illnesses, but most often occurs due to central nervous system disorders. Pulmonary disorders and medications. As this episode is all things brain and salt related, common CNS diagnoses which can lead to SIDH are meningitis, encephalitis, neoplasms in the central nervous system, post pituitary surgery, hydrocephalus, and TBI.
1: Just to summarize, we will be reviewing specific electrolyte disorders in future episodes. However, please remember that hyponatremia like SIDH typically develops when a relative excess of free water is accompanied by an underlying condition that impairs the ability to excrete free water. In SIDH, ADH secretion occurs independently of serum osmolality and intravascular volume status.
0: Interestingly, we have to remember that SIDH is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. Before SIDH can be diagnosed, Diseases causing decreased effective circulating volume, renal impairment, adrenal insufficiency, and hypothyroidism must be excluded. So Rahul, what do we clinically see in a patient with SIDH?
1: Well, the hallmarks of SIDH are mild volume expansion with low to normal plasma concentrations of creatinine, urea, uric acid, and potassium, impaired free water excretion, with normal sodium excretion, which reflects sodium intake, and hyponatremia, which is hallmark, and it is relatively unresponsive to sodium administration in the absence of fluid restriction. So if left uncorrected, SADH can lead to severe hyponatremia with plasma concentrations less than 120, and that could lead to seizures. Now to close out this topic, Pradeep, how would you approach the management of SIDH?
0: Rahul, SIDH is usually of short duration and resolves with treatment of the underlying disorder and discontinuation of the offending agents. Additionally, fluid restriction is the cornerstone to the therapy of SIDH. I typically tell residents and fellows, whenever they have a child with bacterial meningitis, regardless of what the sodium is, if they are not in shock, then we should restrict them to two-thirds maintenance IV fluids and carefully watch the sodium. Sometimes fluid restriction can result in slow correction of hyponatremia and is frequently impractical in infants who receive most of their nutrition as liquids.
1: Finally, let's talk about cerebral salt wasting. How can we compare and contrast cerebral salt wasting and SIADH? That's a great question. In the setting of central
0: nervous system injury or following a neurosurgical procedure, hyponatremia is usually attributed to SIADH, a condition Whose hallmark is euvolemia to mild hypervolemia, with the cornerstone of management being fluid restriction. More recently, it has become apparent that an increasing number of neurosurgical patients present with hyponatremia can have cerebral salt wasting, a condition whose hallmark is renal sodium loss leading to extracellular volume depletion.
1: So, to summarize, with cerebral salt wasting and SIDH, they both can cause hyponatremia in the setting of brain injury. However, patients with cerebral salt wasting are hypovolemic relative to patients with SIADH who have a euvolemic hyponatremia. Pradeep, what is the pathogenesis of cerebral salt wasting?
0: That's an excellent question. I think the pathogenesis of cerebral salt wasting is not completely understood, but it appears to be due to release of natriuretic peptides such as ANP or atrial natriuretic peptide as we reviewed in our physiology discussion earlier. Now, ANP helps us with three things. Hemodynamic effects leading to an increased GFR, inhibition of renin, inhibition of secretion and action of ADH. And just to summarize, the key distinguishing feature between cerebral salt wasting and SIDH is extracellular volume depletion. You can establish this assessment by serial monitoring of urine output clinical exam, central venous pressure monitoring, and daily weights in the patient.
1: Pradeep, any other clinical pearls regarding cerebral salt wasting?
0: Yes. So you can provide normal saline infusion to a patient, let's say, who has SIDH. That should be enough to prevent hyponatremia. However, if a clinically significant hyponatremia develops in a patient with CNS disorder receiving only normal saline, then the diagnosis of cerebral salt wasting should be strongly considered, especially if the patient has polyuria. So any patient in the PICU with polyuria who's dropping their serum sodium, we should entertain the diagnosis of cerebral salt wasting. So Rahul, how do we manage patients who have cerebral salt wasting?
1: The hallmark pearl is to expand their intravascular space. This can be achieved by normal saline infusion, followed by sufficient quantities of normal saline and 3% hypertonic saline to maintain fluid balance and serum sodium concentrations to near normal. Now, there have been studies which have advocated for the administration of fludrocortisone as aldosterone production is relatively decreased in cerebral salt wasting. Rahul, do you mind
0: summarizing all things sodium and brain in the PQ today?
1: Absolutely. Let's do a bit of an active recall approach to compare and contrast diabetes insipidus, cerebral salt wasting, and SIDH. Let's start with diabetes insipidus. Pradeep, what is the patient's serum sodium and diabetes insipidus? The serum
0: sodium is increased. It's typically greater than 145 milliequilones per liter. Rahul, what about the urine osmolarity?
1: In diabetes insipidus, the urine osmolarity will be low, and the management for central diabetes insipidus is to administer DDAVP or vasopressin. All right, Pradeep, our last question. What about the difference in patient volume status between cerebral salt wasting and SIDH?
0: So Rahul, before I answer that question, I wanted to make one thing very clear. When you have a patient whose urine output is greater than 4 cc's per kilo per hour, And the sodium is increasing, that is central DI, unless proven otherwise. You really don't need a lot of other labs to make a diagnosis of central DI. Now, to answer your second question, what is the difference in the volume status between a patient with cerebral salt wasting and SIDH? Cerebral salt wasting has hypovolemia, whereas SIDH, the patient is euvolemic. So if you do a measurement of the patient's weight, central venous pressure, both of them will be increased in a patient with SIDH compared to a patient who has cerebral salt wasting. Now, this concludes our episode on all things sodium and brain in the PQ. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimena. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.